Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. How many of you, when you have stepped out in the Lord and shared your faith or you've ministered something and things have gone badly, there's been real pushback. People got angry at you. People people didn't understand. I mean, come on. Uh, All of that came back. Your your reaction was, I must have done something wrong. I mean, because if I did this right, they'd all receive the Lord. If I did this right, they would like this. And so I must have done something wrong. I blew it somehow in the way I did this. What I want you to see today is that if you're doing something right, you can count on trouble. When there's a reaction, you did something right. Now, I know we can can charge in there with our flesh, and I know we we can do dumb stuff. But very often, you're assuming that you did something foolish. When really the issue is spiritual. We're going to see that today. We're going, to, we're going to see a reaction. We're going to see how Paul prepared people to face the realities, the opposition, the demonic world, the hostile world. How he prepared them to stand in that. Father God, we ask for our hearts to be opened. We do not come casually to your word. This is your word. And it is full of life, every single word of it. And Lord, we ask for the eyes that see and ears that hear your your voice and hearts that know and receive. By faith, we listen to your word. I listen to your word. This word's for me. I bless you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. In fact, the Lord said this one is especially for you, Steve. So I hope you enjoy it. But um, I need this. Talking about eternal perspectives. We're in a section of the book of Acts where we're watching Paul and Barnabas move from city to city. They only stay for a matter of weeks or months before they're forced to move on. Yet in each place, they leave new believers who've been joined together into a spiritual family who are very aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit among them and who in the midst of great hostility possess an almost inexplicable joy. You would think, that after the apostles departed, these new babes in Christ would quickly be overwhelmed by all the pressures against them and abandon their faith. You would think that it would be impossible to establish something lasting in such a short period of time with so little teaching and in such a hostile environment. Yet as we continue watching these missionary journeys, we see just the opposite. We see churches taking root and growing. Paul's letters that fill up so much of our New Testament are written to churches that began just this way. And though they are clearly not without their struggles, collapsing and ceasing to exist is not one of them. Instead, Paul's letters are full of the normal pastoral issues that arise in a body of believers. Isn't it remarkable to you? I mean, we're, we're, we're going through here in the book of Acts, we're watching the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and everybody as they go out and they go from city to city and introduce Jesus Christ in cities that have never heard it before. That's Paul's assignment. So here they are arriving 
And, and it's in many cases, weeks that they're, they can stay. They come in, start cold turkey with a group that's never heard the name of Jesus. And three weeks later in one case, and I'm going to show you that in a minute. Three weeks later, they have to leave. Now, who would think anything could be established that would last in three weeks? What on earth did they do to those people? What did they do in the course of three weeks or a month or two months? The only places they stayed any length of time, Ephesus was three years. It was a massive church. And Corinth, it was quite a wild bunch. Anyway, it was. He was there for a year and a half. But that's it. Everywhere else is this. And yet, the church grew. The church took. People stood in Christ. So how do we explain the fact that people who'd been, had so little time invested in them were able to endure and even flourish in their faith? What did Paul and Barnabas do to them that left them with such tenacious faith? Of course, we already know the most important reason, which is that they had been presented with an accurate gospel, and as a result, they were fully born again, including receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying there? They had, been, they had repented, they had believed in Christ as their righteousness entirely. They put their arms around his cross and trusted him. And they had been taught and ministered to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Lots of argument about that. But come on, it is a very real encounter with the Lord. And they had received the power. So the Holy Spirit was at work in them. They, it wasn't just theory. It wasn't just theology that they were believing these things. They had encountered the living God. How many of you have met him, felt him, touch, he's touched you? You know he's there. Come on. Yeah. Makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, even though I don't maybe have the, the human structure supporting me, he doesn't leave me. He doesn't leave me. And that makes all the difference. So there was no doubt in their minds that God had come into their lives. The gospel had come to them with power. This was not simply a new doctrine. God was with them. They felt his love. They saw the sick healed and the tormented delivered, and he answered their prayers. This was more than religion. This was reality. But Paul and Barnabas also taught them well. They laid a foundation of understanding so these new believers would have an accurate perspective on what was happening to them. There are so many things we need to know about God. So many principles and truths that guide our lives. But if you only had a few weeks with someone and there was no such thing as Christian literature, think about it. There is no Christian literature. You're the guy that has to write it. Yeah, He's, he, he was going to be writing the Christian literature. There is no, you, there's no podcasts, there's no bookstores, there's nothing you can, you can turn them to. Only the Old Testament, and maybe only parts of that, probably only parts of that. What would you teach them? What truths would they need above everything else so that they could face the trials ahead? The answer is surprising and very basic. Paul and Barnabas, and I will point out, and Jesus, taught things many of us today might think of as negative or overly controversial. We might mention these things in passing, but not really hammer at home as truths vital to their survival. But they did. And maybe that's why their disciples, young in their faith though they were, stood firm in the midst of the storm of affliction. And maybe it's because they faced a hostile world 
armed with eternal perspectives. All right, let's look at Acts 13. I'll start at verse 51. They are, okay, let's just remind ourselves where we are. We are in Pisidian Antioch. It's a city right in the middle of what today is Turkey, uh, kind of the central part of Turkey, sort of the western part of the central part of Turkey. You, they have gone 100 miles over the Taurus Mountains, remember this? Through this wild country, dangerous country. And they've come to Pisidian Antioch, this Roman outpost, this, this political headquarters, military headquarters. They have gone into the synagogue, preached the sermon that's recorded here, which I think is his stock sermon. I think the sermon we got here in the first part of this chapter is what Paul preaches when he goes into a synagogue. I think you, you're hearing his basic message right there. How, what's the response? Well, lots of people began to believe. Too many. So much so that the religious leaders of the synagogue became very threatened, and we saw the other day jealous. Jealous of what was happening. Not just... Not just threatened, jealous of what was going on. So they raise up uh, 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 the political leaders of the city. They stir everybody. And finally, they take Paul and Barnabas uh, out to the edge of their jurisdiction, it says. I don't know whether that's a city limit or where it, where it was. They went to the edge of the jurisdiction, and then they threw them out. They said, get out of here and don't come back. And you recall what Paul and Barnabas did? Uh, I'll comment on it later. They took and, and they somehow shook the dust off their, their feet. I don't know if they took their sandal off and did that. Uh, it has real meaning. We're going to see it in a minute. I, I brushed over it before, uh, but, it, but we, uh, I won't this time. All right, so now verse 51. Now they're moving on. They're going about, uh, I think it's about uh, 60 miles on to Iconium. They shook off the dust from their feet in protest and went to Iconium. Now look at verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Would you read that? And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, so there's Pisidian Antioch. We've got all of this controversy going. We've got, we've got, a, we've got a, a persecution underway. Your leaders have been ejected from town. And what's your response? You are continually full of what? And come on. I mean, what did they do to those guys? Uh, 14.1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Here we go. And spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. And was, who was testifying to the word of his grace, notice this, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Do you see that? They preached, he showed up in power and did miracles, signs and wonders to confirm his word. But the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, of Lyconia is the region, Lystra and Derby and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Just as they had done in Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas began in Iconium by attending synagogue on the Sabbath and speaking about Jesus Christ. And again, just as they had, had happened in Pisidian Antioch, a large number of Jews and God-fearing Greeks believed their message. And again, 
those synagogue leaders who refused to be persuaded by what they heard worked aggressively to stir up anger and abuse the souls of the Gentiles in that city toward the brothers. Isn't that, a, isn't that a, quite a phrase? That's what he actually says. Luke says, they abused the souls. Doesn't say mine. Abused the souls of the, of the brethren. I mean, of the people toward the brethren. Wow. Yet rather than flee this growing danger, Paul and Barnabas chose to remain in the city long enough to lay a good foundation of understanding for those disciples. And they continued to speak out boldly. Look, look there at verse three again. Just if you have your Bible still open. It, all right, verse two says, you've got this, you've got this stirring uh, controversy. You've got, you've got a persecution rising. Minds are being stirred up. And what is the first word in verse three? Therefore, say therefore. therefore. There's a problem. There's a crisis brewing. Uh, there's, a, there's a persecution on the way. Therefore, they did what? They stayed a long time. That's, that's significant. The shepherd does not flee when he sees the wolf come. You know, you might say, well, why didn't they just run, man? There's problems rising. Because the shepherd, you don't bring people to Christ you don't teach them this. You don't get them in trouble and then run. You follow? You get in these smaller communities, compared to what we live in, these are all small communities. These smaller communities, and you make a stand like this and your whole family knows. You ever live in a small town? Change churches in a small town. Everybody in town knows. So, you're going over there, huh? Your relatives, I mean, you're an embarrassment. I mean, it's an issue. Think of what they're going through. They've stepped out of their family life and they've joined Jesus Christ. And now there's a persecution. You think the apostles are going to run? Because there's a stirring, therefore, they stayed all the longer. And they stayed to teach them and lay a foundation in them as long as they could. We, we did see there's an end to that. We'll see it in a minute. To, be a, uh, to lay a foundation... To be able to do this, Luke says, they relied on the Lord who was witnessing to the word of his grace, working signs and wonders through their hands. I want you to have this in your mind, that the early church, the preaching of the gospel was accompanied by signs and wonders. You heard the truth and you saw miracles. God saying, this is my word. You do not have practitioners who are simply going around with a doctrine, telling people this is a new truth to believe. You have people going around saying, Jesus is alive. Watch. <laughs> See? It was, there was confirming going on. It should be today the same. It should be today the same. The healing and work, miracle power of God is not an odd thing. It is not a thing of the past. It is meant to go hand in hand, arm in arm with the preaching of the gospel. God never asks people to simply believe a doctrine. He asks them to believe the truth. And he proves it's true by his presence, certainly pulling away the veil but, and touching their hearts and confirming to them, but also showing them his mighty power. I am alive, he says. I'm alive. This is my word. See? And he heals your grandmother and all of a sudden go, well, okay, all right. The population of this city was split in two. 
Some sided with the Jewish leaders and others with the apostles. Tension between the groups grew until a mob formed made up of both Gentiles and Jews, including their synagogue leaders. At some point, the angry crowd begins sweeping across the city, intent on humiliating. Now, there's a word there. Humiliating Paul and Barnabas and then stoning them. This is a chilling description he gives. The, uh, he uses this strange word. Luke uses this word. There began a rush. Well, can you imagine what he's talking about? There began a rush across. And so we have a mob forming. And it begins to move across the city toward wherever the apostles are. And you can hear the noise. Their intent is two things. And I, don't, I didn't even probe what, what, where we're going with it. But it says to publicly humiliate them. What were they going to do to them? I don't even want to know. They were going sh- to shame them in front of everyone. And then they were going to stone him to death. And so as this, this wave begins sweeping across the city and they hear it coming as the rush is on, Paul and Barnabas do leave. Hallelujah. Uh, better, a, better a live dog than a dead lion. At that moment, rather than die needlessly, they fled the city, traveling eastward into another part of the same region called Lyconia, They first fled to Lystra, which was about 20 miles south of Iconium. Things don't get better in Lystra. We'll see that soon. Uh, In Lystra, he's actually stoned, I think, to death. Remember that? The the next town along the road, he's going to be stoned to death. They're going to drag his body outside the city and dump it. Disciples will gather around, pray for him. He'll come, I think, back to life. And then he says... That's a great town. Let's go. And he goes back. I'm serious. What a man. What, he's either crazy or he's just... And he goes back into town. What, the, you know, Jesus wants you hot or cold, right? Man, this is, this is ice cold. Come on, let's go. He goes back into town. How do you stop a guy like that? You don't. Luke doesn't tell us what topics the apostles taught during the few weeks or months they stayed in these cities. But if we look at Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, we can discover what he taught a church facing a similar situation. And we find that he prepared that church to expect persecution. And he talked a great deal about the coming of the Lord. He gave them a spiritual perspective on what they were facing and how it would end. Thessalonians are the earliest of his letters. He wrote them while he was down in Corinth. He just, and it's only, they're only, he's only been in Thessalonica a few weeks earlier. He comes to Thessalonica and apparently he's there only three weeks. How many weeks? All right, so what do you teach of people? You've come in cold turkey, preached the gospel, people have come to Christ, you started a church, and three weeks later you're gone. What do you teach them? That, you would, that causes them to last. Well, we can see it. He, got, he had to be taken out quickly. They were going to kill him. And he went down to Athens, and we have a bit of that in the book of Acts and all that. And then from Corinth, he wrote these letters. Second Thessalonians is just a few weeks after first. This is his correspondence with this group of people that he's brought to Christ, and he's been, he's been forced out of town. So we can learn a lot about what he taught in those situations. And here's what we'll find. Number one, he didn't hide from them the fact that they would suffer. Look, this is totally un-American. Isn't it? 
Now, I have actually, I have actually heard several people say over the years that really Paul's problem is that he had a bad confession. Uh, some people believe you get what you say, and if that's true, I'd be dead. Anyway, uh, but it, you, you, they, you get what you say, and, and then you point out that Paul did suffer, and he paid apparently even had some physical things and, and they, they just really bothers their theology. And, and, and so they say, well, his problem was Paul didn't have, have full faith yet. I mean, you know, not like, not like some of our, our present teachers. Yeah. And, uh, but I'll go with him. Okay. Um, but so he, he, here he comes along and we're taught that when you come to Christ, uh, what you, what you're going to get is you're going to get health and get a new car and you're going to get every, everything everything good. What they never give you is, the, is what you should have is the, is the warning label, this fine print. We're going to look at the fine print today. This is what also comes with the package of being a Christian. Yes, he's our healer, and yes, he's our provider, and all of those things. And you can also count on this. You'll be persecuted. And if they didn't tell you that, I need to tell you that. And if that changes the deal for you, if you need to cut and run, then, then you should know. Because if you belong to Jesus Christ, there's a spirit in this world. And it's actually getting darker. It's, and, and I, we, this, what, what he, they're going through is, is open physical persecution. But you and I right now are, are facing an increasingly weighty industrial grade persecution. That's a, that's a social thing from a, from a massive media and government structure and everything else. It is a pre- someday this may come, but right now it's, it's getting heavier and it's spiritually heavier. You and I need these lessons. These are not just lessons for these poor old folks back then when they lived in hard times. If you and I are going to stand, you and I are going to be strong, you and I are going to stick in the middle of a hostile environment, we need to hear the same raw truths that he taught them. And the first thing he said is, persecution's gonna come. Count on it. Watch, I'll show you. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. All the T's are together. If you get Timothy or anything, Titus, you're close. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Listen, listen to what he says. Therefore, and he's writing, remember, from Corinth. He's just, just he's down on the, on the uh, peninsula there or the major part of Greece. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and, our, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, this trouble that's come. For you yourselves know that we have been, what's your say? Say destined for this. Oh boy, there's a promise for you. You yourselves know, he says, we have been what? Destined for this. Join yourself to Christ and the world will hate you. Didn't he say something like that? He said, if the world has hated me, It'll hate you too. Welcome to my family. You're my people. Come on. That's the way it is. We have been destined for this for indeed when we were with you in those three weeks we had together, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, 
When I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. In other words, I'm writing to you because I'm worried about you guys. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy's come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us as we long to see you. And for this reason, brethren, in our, all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you uh, through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Isn't that sweet? Listen to what Paul just said. He said, I'm, I'm, we're dealing with it here too. We're suffering. And man, he says, if you're, if you're standing in Christ... I'm alive. He says, I live if you're doing well. He loves him. Can you hear the bond in it? This is a man who's, who, this is coming out of his heart. He's not doing this out of any other reason. But he, he was careful to put, he didn't hide their, uh, from them the fact they would suffer, but he was careful to put their persecution into perspective. He explained that it is a necessary part of a believer's life during this season of human history. He also assured them that in their suffering would end at the return of Jesus Christ. And all who had died would be resurrected and meet them in the air. This is only a limited time. It's for this period while we're on the planet, but Jesus is coming and there is a resurrection. Chapter four, you know this passage. We use it at every funeral. But we do not, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we are, who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will always be with him. They lived, he taught them, Jesus is coming and there is a resurrection and those who have died and gone before us, don't worry about them. They are with him now and they're coming and they're looking good when they show up. They're gonna look 30 years old and healthy as all get out. Grandpa's going to have hair. <laughs> so is grandma. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. They're going to have, they're going to have hair. They're going to be strong. They're coming in white robes. They're coming and clothed with the Lord. And then you, if we're alive and remain, if Jesus shows up while we're still here on the planet, you get, you know what the rapture is? It's, it's, it's where you get resurrected while you're standing here alive. That's what it is. It's all of a sudden you're walking along and up you go. That's the rapture. It makes all the sense in the world. You're resurrection, resurrected without having died. Yeah. And up you go. You meet and we all meet in the air. They lived in those realities. If you're going to suffer, if the world is going to be a harsh place, you have to know the treasure that's waiting for you. That's not pie in the sky, folks. That's, that's the air we breathe. That is the hope that burns in our heart. That's why we can go through these difficult society and difficult world and the things we live in and still burn with joy because we know our reality. We know where we're headed. We understand why we're suffering. We get it. We're not ignorant and frightened. We are doing it intentionally. He taught them, number three, their suffering had meaning, that they were enduring affliction for the sake of the kingdom of God. 
that God himself saw their perseverance and considered them worthy citizens of his kingdom and that he would justly judge those who afflicted them. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm starting there at verse 3. Listen to how he puts this into perspective. This, hang on to your hat. This is intense. We always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. Remember, this is just a few weeks after the first letter. As is fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your what? persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This, he says, is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment that he found you righteous so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Here comes a fierce justice, hang on, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who believed, for our testimony to you was believed. That's not politically correct. Right now, there is a trend in the kind of in the hipster movement of Christianity that is very embarrassed by the thought of hell. And so you're finding people are beginning to get a revelation that there really isn't a hell. And there's only a few ways that you can approach the thing. It's either annihilation. When people die, they cease to exist. Kind of like, it's, it's a mercy killing. It's like putting somebody out of their misery. So if they're going to be lost, God just says, no, I'm going to snuff you out and you'll cease to exist. The problem is there's absolutely no indication of the Bible for that. Second thing, you can take it and say it's purgatory. You get on the other side and you get in, this, you get in hell and you get in this miserable condition and you say, I'm not, this is lousy. I want out of here. I'm sorry. And then you go up. So you, you kind of get, you get your mind straight when you get in trouble over on the other side and you, you turn. There's absolutely no indication for that. Look, you, how long, what, what did he just say here? How long is the uh, destruction? Yeah. There was a fellow that came to town recently and he wanted me to advertise for him. And I, of course, I wouldn't do it. He wanted to have a debate with one of the pastors in town about hell. He's one of the young hipster guys and he's gonna, he's gonna take that approach, I, I suppose, purgatory annihilation. And, and he's going to argue with some you know, traditional old pastor and make the guy look like a fool. And, and he wanted me to, me to support that. Uh, needless to say, I wouldn't even mention it. <laughs> Anything I could do to kill it. Um, what is he doing? He's, right now, the American church is trying to survive by staying one step behind the culture. Not ahead of it. Just one step behind it. Whatever they're doing, we will, see, we will get a revelation for pretty soon. 
and we're going to catch up behind them so that we can accommodate the culture, so that the culture is comfortable with us, so that people aren't feeling awkward. Americans feel good in our environment. The problem is it guts you. What are you going to do if you live in this false environment and you do not know these truths? Why do you think Jesus came and had to die on a cross if there really is no problem? Why, why, do you, why do you think these people should suffer? Why should you suffer? Why should you stick your neck out for Jesus Christ? Why should you, why should you give financially, go places, serve him? Why should you discomfort yourself if it doesn't matter? What I believe happens is I read it carefully. I think you step across when you die in the condition you are. I think the fire of hell, as it were, I think it's the Shekinah glory. I think we're all going into the intense glory of God. But those who are separated from him, those who are left without Christ, you who have made a choice day after day, week after week throughout your life against the light, you did not pursue the revelation. You did not want to walk in the truth because when you came toward God, he would tell you things that you didn't want to hear. That's John 3, verse 21. I just quoted scripture. I paraphrased it. You came toward him and he would tell you things you didn't want to hear. And so you turned around and went the other way and you made a habit of it. You made a lifestyle of it. You made a whole process of choosing. So now when you step across, he will give you what you wanted. You didn't want him. You won't have him. And you will be separated from him forever. If you don't believe me, go to a care center. Go see the elderly. You can watch them because the process has already started. They're already on their way somewhere. You can sense it. You can feel it. I mean, it, you can still lead people to the Lord at the last minute, have done so. But it, you can see the desperation. You can watch people who do not have God. You can watch them in their misery. And you can watch people who can't tell you what day it is. They don't know who you are. But you can see the presence of the Lord on their face. You can see Jesus in them. There's a sweetness. It's in there. Their spirit is joined to him already. Listen, this, people, this is real. This isn't a game. Where you end up, you are dying. We are headed into eternity. This does matter. And they understood that. Paul taught them that. They, he taught them. I'll, I'll show you in a minute. Jesus, th that warning that he gave, the shaking of the dust, that was, a, that was a, an aggressive act. And it was done out of love and out of deep commitment to this reality. He told them that the world is headed into a very dark time. Just stay there in Thessalonians. I'll show you a little more. Things will get worse before they get better. Are you there at chapter 2? 2 Thessalonians. Now, now remember, three weeks in this, in this city. Three weeks in Thessalonica. Listen, listen to what he says here. I'll just do it quickly. He says, chapter 2, verse 1. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somebody has started a rumor that the resurrection has already taken place. And so this is going on and he's trying to quell that. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the great falling away, the hardening and chilling of the planet against God, where the whole planet begins to turn either for him or against him. That's what the book of Revelation describes. 
He says that apostasy is going to come and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who's that? In three weeks, he's teaching about the Antichrist. Last days stuff. See that? He said, here's what you watch for. Do you remember verse five? While I was with you, I still with you, I was telling you these things. And you know what restrains him now. And he goes on about the restraining of the Antichrist and all of these things. He's teaching them that there is a dark force at work, this, this Antichrist spirit, that it continues through, through history and will get worse and worse until finally it will come to its full fruit in the Antichrist himself. He says, that's the planet you live in. You who now love the Lord, you who now call on him for his kingdom, you are living in an environment which has that spirit at work in it. You need to know that. Now, in other words, during the few weeks he spent, he taught them about the last days, even what signs to watch for to, the point, to point to the Antichrist. Both Paul and Jesus thought this was essential knowledge for disciples. Did Jesus teach on these things? Extensively. Extensively. He said, here's what you watch for. Here's what will happen. Somehow, we need that in us. This isn't silliness. I know there are people who do silly things with it. But you can't, you can't, you can't, because someone handles it poorly, you can't throw out that reality. You and I wait for a coming Jesus Christ. You and I wait in a fallen world. You and I know these things are going to be. We are not ignorant of these things. We understand, which makes us strong. Which makes us strong. We aren't afraid. We aren't confused. We understand what we see. And by one strange prophetic action, as he left the city in Antioch, he taught them that people must be warned of the danger of rejecting Jesus Christ. But shaking the dust from their, from their feet on them, that's the literal, they came to Iconium. I went by this the other day when I mentioned it and, and just sort of said it humorously and, and passed on about them shaking the dust off their feet. The Lord kind of brought me up short and he he, he, he took me back to this. Read the, look at this with me. Verse 51 there. But shaking the dust from their feet, they came to Iconium. This symbolic gesture meant, I don't want even the dust from this place clinging to my sandals because God's judgment against this place will be so severe. In doing this, Paul and Barnabas were not merely expressing frustration at being rejected by the city. They were obeying, listen, a specific command of the Lord. Jesus had told his disciples to use this visible act to warn cities which refused to listen to their message. He said, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are in it, who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom has come near. After explaining when and how to present this prophetic warning, Jesus also explained to his disciples why judgment would be so severe toward those who rejected their message. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, please notice he expected miracles. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. 
we should note that Jesus expected that healing the sick would accompany the preaching of the gospel. People would not only hear the truth, they would see God's power at work, confirming Jesus' messengers were preaching the truth. Jesus made it clear that this warning needed to be delivered in a fashion people wouldn't forget. The gospel presents a person with an opportunity to receive God's grace. But if rejected, it leaves that person guilty of having deliberately refused to repent. So it brings with it not only the opportunity for salvation, but the potential for greater condemnation. This is because when it is proclaimed faithfully, it's accompanied by the presence of the Holy Spirit who confirms its truth by such miracles as healing and deliverance, and even more importantly, by removing the veil of deception which blinds the human minds to God's truth so that an individual is able to understand the message they are hearing and repent. So when Paul and Barnabas arrived in a city, the Holy Spirit arrived with them. And as they proclaimed the truth, he bore witness to that truth. And under those circumstances, refusing to believe left a person in willful defiance of God's invitation. In other words, Jesus said, and I don't think we have to do this. I don't think if you did it today, people would get it. I think they're going, what is he doing? A new dance. But they understood it. And he he said, I want you to give them a warning that they understand. Because if they have come this close to the kingdom, they've heard the gospel and they've seen the power. And then they turn on their heel and they walk away from it. They need to know they're in danger. Why? Because of what I just explained to you earlier. Because that's really there. I give warnings every so often. Every so often I'll have to sit down with somebody and I'll, and, and I'll, and I'll say, look, and this is after a series of processes. This is not a hit people cold turkey. We've, we've come somewhere before we get here. And I'll have to say, look, it says here, if you practice these things, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And that means the resurrection. You'll not be part of us. And, and I said, please repent. We love you. We want you to repent. But I need to warn you. You are in jeopardy of your spirit. You're in jeopardy of your soul. Now listen, what is the American gospel? That God just loves you no matter what. God's just, he's just down there, you know, just loving everybody. God's just dumb. I mean, just, just kind of whatever. It's not true. He loves you so much, he sent his son. He loves you so much, he's, 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 he's predestined your life and has a wonderful plan for you. He loves you so much that he's done everything in his power to reach you. But that love does not mean that you can turn your back on him, harden your heart and walk off in rebellion. It does not mean that. And and that's why if I love you, I'll warn you. I won't be kooky. I won't be self-righteous. I won't be angry. I won't be silly. But I will warn you that this is not a game. It does matter. He taught them that in spite of their afflictions to keep a positive attitude, he said, rejoice always. Praying without ceasing and everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He taught the Ephesian church to stay full of the Spirit by practicing continual worship and focusing their mind on giving God thanks for all things. We could spend a lot of time there, we won't. But listen, in the middle of all of this trouble, he taught them to turn to the power of the Spirit. He said, when you're depressed, when you're sad, when your mother's just been arrested, continually worship continually worship songs and spiritual songs worship the lord and he and he said and then in and then give thanks for everything god has done for you turn your mind to the things of that 
and stand and feel, be full of joy. And they did. In the middle of all of that, they were full of joy. As we look back over this passage, here are some eternal perspectives these believers have, must have learned. Paul and Barnabas taught some of these directly and others they learned as they watched the situation unfold before their eyes. Number one, Jesus divides people. When the truth and power are present, the human heart recognizes him and choices are made. Jesus said, do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. So sometimes when you're ministering and there's a reaction, you didn't do anything wrong. They rejected him, not you. Number two, you entered a spiritual war. Expect persecution. We must be doing something right. God will judge those who afflict you. We should have compassion on those who persecute us and pray for them. We should tremble for them. Because they don't, if they don't repent, they will face a terrible justice. They will get everything justice they want. They will go right into eternity apart from God forever. People must be warned. Tell them so they won't forget it. They need to know they are in spiritual danger. Do it lovingly. Do it responsibly. Do it when he, only when he tells you, but you will have to speak warnings at times. Number five, the world is headed to a very dark time. It will get worse before it gets better. But our job is not to get sour. Don't buy a gun and move to Idaho. <laughs> you laugh. I had a guy last night who, who said, I, I got rid of my gun. I'm selling them. And he said, I got 60 acres off in central Washington. And he says, let's use it for a camp. And he, and he said, I, I, I was the man you talked about. I was the man you talked about. I had a gun and I, and I, and I, was, I was ready for World War III. And he says, God's, God's convicted me. And I said, you put your guns down and we'll fight with different weapons. Listen, people, we don't run from this. We do not run to save ourselves. We wade into it. We wade into it. We are the leaven that gets put into the lump. We don't, we don't run away and we don't hide. Our job is to see God's kingdom break into this earth now. We pray for the sick. We pray for the tormented. We we. we, 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 we intercede for the places where we work. We worship the Lord. We press back the darkness. We are on the aggressive. We are not running. Jesus will come for us. When we die, we know he will meet us. When he returns, we will be resurrected. And we will stay positive, full of the spirit, by continual worship and deliberate thanks. Application. We may not face the physical hostility they faced, but we need these truths as much as they did. We face a different kind of assault for our faith, but it's very real and getting stronger. We too need perspective on the affliction we suffer. We need to know that there is purpose in our suffering. God's kingdom is still at war with the spiritual darkness around us. There will always be a backlash. Yet our brothers and sisters in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby and Thessalonica have shown us what's possible. We too can be continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Would you say amen? amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.